for many of us, our opinions about what politicians are and what they're about comes from what they do in Parliament. It's shaped by what happens in the National Assembly. That's the big, beautiful, ornate chamber where the House Speaker overlooks this room of 400 seats where our elected representatives sit. It's supposed to be all full of gravitas and a beautiful, august place where our democracy finds its voice and the people who look out for our interests, well, look out for our interests. The entire gathering here Honorable is Nguyen. unconstitutional. Honorable House Chairperson, I'm rising on a point of order. It has nothing to do with what has been said. What is your point of order? Can the maze be taken out of the house? Madam Speaker, I'm on the floor. I'm here to ask questions and we need answers. Doesn't always work out that way. I'm Charlotte Kilbane. I am the news editor of EWN in Cape Town, where, of course, Parliament is based. And I'm Rahima Esop. I'm the correspondent based in Parliament for Eyewitness News. You would be forgiven for thinking that punch-ups and blowouts are all that happen in Parliament. You would be wrong, though, because the real work of Parliament happens in the committees, populated by a cluster of members of Parliament from various parties who are responsible for oversight of all the State Departments. And every now and again, one of these committees use their constitutional powers to hold an inquiry. It's usually when things go really wrong in government or state-owned companies that MPs begin to crack the whip. So, what went wrong? These are murky times in South Africa. And then, of course, the leaked emails referring to the controversial Gupta family. We've also spoken about offshore accounts as well as related state corruption that benefits the Gupta family. Do you think that the release of the Gupta leaks, those particular emails, do you think it'll change anything come uh, December in terms of the ANC's national conference? Well, I think what, what it has changed uh, in, in the immediate sense is, is uh, given us all confirmation of either perceptions or suspicions or knowledge of uh, what we would generally call corruption. So the Gupta leaks happened. That absolute mass of emails, which has completely taken over our lives, completely taken over the news cycle. Can you believe they only happened this year in 2017? And of course, those Gupta leaks showed us that there is quite possibly a shadow state in operation in South Africa run by these Gupta brothers, AJ, Tony, Atul. So they're actually in control of the state, if we're to believe uh, the Gupta leaked emails. Them and their front companies, their associates companies, and yes, of course, some of them are willing to pay 30 million rand for a wedding. Two of the biggest state-owned enterprises that are crucial to keeping the economy going, Charlotte, have been their targets. Without ESCOM generating power, the economy will flatline. And without Transnet, the import-export system that we rely on would fall apart and supermarket shelves would be empty. So it comes as no surprise then that these two companies have massive budgets to procure goods and services. So what does this mean then for corrupt state officials and greedy business people? Kaching! <laughs> Such a big kaching. So, okay, let, let's fast forward because we started this with a parliamentary inquiry. What is the parliamentary inquiry that we're going to be talking about today? Rahima, what's been happening? Okay, so on the 17th of October this year, after months of delays and wrangling, 
tenacious MPs got started with this inquiry. It's the Public Enterprises Portfolio Committee. They're going to be looking at governance failures and corruption at ESCOM, Transnet, and Donnell in an investigation that could span several months. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take. ESCOM is first on the radar. The MPs are looking at Brian Molefe's sweet retirement package. Wasn't that like 30 million bucks? 30 million. Why is 30 million a thing in this story so far? I have no idea. <laughs> ESCOM's role in helping the Gupta-owned Tegeta Mining Company to buy another coal company. Yes, that's a state-owned entity basically using taxpayer money to help a private company complete a business deal. So wait, just back up here. Am I right in saying that we, meaning the South African taxpayer like you and me, who pays tax off our salary every single month, we bought the Guptas a coal mine? We bought the Guptas a coal mine for real? Well, Charlotte, you're not way off in saying that because think about it. We pay ESCOM for electricity. We also pay our taxes and ESCOM bought the coal mine. This came up in the inquiry. Untutuzelo Venara, he's the advocate who's leading the evidence in this inquiry. He posed the question. He asked, do you know what OPM is? Do you? I don't. Other people's money. This particular transaction we just uh, discussed now, if the 1.6 billion was facilitated by ESCOM, the 600 uh, million came from ESCOM. And the portion of the purchase price came from trillion who happened to have been paid under very dubious circumstances, also by ESCOM. Do we see this OPM concept at play here? From all the evidence that I had at the time what I know now from the media and other reports. This is definitely a case of OPM. MPs will also be looking at the parastatal signing of a 43 million rand contract with a Gupta-owned media company and ESCOM paying Gupta-aligned consulting firms more than 500 million rand for barely doing any work. And here's the kicker, Charlotte. There were no contracts in place. So this is the whole trillion thing, right? This is where trillion comes in. This is trillion. Right. The committee's called a number of former ESCOM executives already. This week, all I've heard about is explosive testimony from this woman called Suzanne, Suzanne, Susan Daniels. What's that all about? Suzanne Daniels. She's a lawyer by trade, a contract hack, who was appointed the head of legal and compliance at ESCOM. She's also the company's secretary. So she interacts with the board and other senior executives. Her job is to make sure that ESCOM's ass is covered in a legal... Can we say that? I mean, you totally can. <laughs> we all say ass, ass, right? ESCOM's ass is covered in a legal sense. What did she have to do with the gift of a coal mine to the Guptas? She would have been the person to look over contracts. She would really know what's going on within the company. One of the things that I picked up during the course of the week, which seems to be, have been memed for days, just memes for days of this, is a story about one of the Gupta brothers in like gray tracky pants hauling off to Melrose Arch, which is ever so posh with no shoes and gray tracky pants. I mean, that's not very Joburg. What was that? 
Suzanne Daniels, under oath, testified that she was going to meet businessman Salim Essa for coffee when she ended up in a room with Ajay Gupta. Now, Salim Essa is a name you'll hear it many times during the inquiry. The newspapers like to refer to him as Gupta Lieutenant. I'll be a little more PC and call him a business associate. He is a central figure in all of this. Imagine a chessboard, Charlotte. If the Guptas are the king... Then President Jacob Zuma is the queen. Salim Essa is bishop number one. Duduzani Zuma, yes, the president's son. Uh, let's call him bishop number two. Essa's business associates and the rest of the Gupta network, including Eric Wood, Mark Pomensky, Clive Angel, and Stanley Shane, as well as the allegedly crooked ESCOM executives, are the rest of the pieces. Then you have the unwitting pawns, the employees of these companies who didn't really know what they were a part of. Some of them have now turned whistleblowers and have testified in the inquiry. So is Suzanne Daniels one of these pawns as well? Ah, that's a difficult question, Charlotte. She is not exactly a pawn, but she did play a role in facilitating the transactions by virtue of the fact that she was the head of legal, yes. We need to get back to this whole memeable thing about because I'm loving the idea of a Gupta brother walking around barefoot in Melrose Arch. Yes. Suzanne met Salim Essa in Melrose Arch on the 29th of July, 2017. Remember that date. It's important. He took her to a townhouse in Melrose Arch where inside the lounge she was met by Ajay Gupta, Duduzani Zuma and Ben Martins. You've got to bear with me here because Jacob Zuma shuffles his cabinet so often that I actually fail to keep track of who's who. Wasn't he the deputy minister of something to do with ESCOM at that time? You're right. Deputy Minister of Public Enterprises, which is the department responsible for ESCOM. Wow. By this stage, Suzanne Daniels is going, what the actual? He mentioned something about but I really couldn't follow what he was saying. And partly because I was actually just, I couldn't believe um, where I was and uh, what, what I was hearing. So she's at this meeting, completely stunned, and AJ Gupta is on the couch speaking to her. I cannot tell you why he was there, all of those things, because it actually wasn't a formal meeting. Mr. Gupta was in a grey tracksuit, pants, no shoes, T-shirt. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a meeting. Uh, well, I think he looked. Well, my view, he looked worse than he was at the Shabin. Uh, so. Um, so I, what struck me, you, you know, I felt like I was in a movie. Oh, wait, Molefe the crier. Molefe, the former CEO of ESCOM. Yes, that Molefe. The one who resigned, retired, took annual leave, got this massive golden handshake, came back again, then was an MP for like five minutes, then wasn't. Same one. The whole retirement fiasco that we spoke about earlier, the 30 million. Well, that landed him in court, and ESCOM paid the $30 million to the ESCOM Pension and Provident Fund so that the company could buy Molefe extra perks and benefits so that he could retire at age 50, even though the rules stipulate he is not allowed to retire early. And here's the clangor. He was not even a permanent employee, which, according to the witnesses who have testified, means 
he was not supposed to have been a member of the pension fund in the first place. Wow, must be nice, hey? So, so what did AJ Gupta want to know? He wanted to know when the case would be heard. It seems, according to Suzanne Daniels' version, that Ajay Gupta was intent on having the case heard after December 2017. He told her he would contact someone in the deputy judge president's office so that he could influence when the case would be heard. Yowza. So, I mean, is, is that supposed to mean that the Guptas have captured or want to capture the judiciary? Well, it turns out he can't do that. Why? Firstly, the judiciary has proven to be a stable institution, you know, resistant to being captured, firstly. And secondly, while it's a technical procedural matter, the case has already been set down for the 29th of November. So our deputy minister, back to our deputy minister and the dramatis personae who were at this strange little townhouse apartment, whatever. Ben Martins was there. Why was he there? It gets a bit more complicated. After hearing what Daniels had to say at the inquiry, he rushes to hold a press conference the next day and says this. The alleged uh, phantom coffee tea party meeting that was spoken about yesterday, I have not been party to such a meeting. So he's basically calling her a liar. Basically. But the question is, where was he then? And where was he? I have not checked my diary. I've not asked any staff where I was on that day. As I said, I've only interacted uh, with these allegations late last night when I came out of Parliament. So he calls this really hasty press conference and he says, I absolutely wasn't there. But if he has to check his diary to know where he was, then how does he know that he wasn't there? Well, that's the question, right? Has he met the Guptas at all? Ben Martins has been all over the place in government, from public enterprises to transport to energy, and then back to public enterprises under President Jacob Zuma's administration. As you mentioned, Zuma likes to reshuffle his cabinet. He's met with the Guptas socially at their home for an Indian food fest, as he puts it. And then as transport minister in 2012, he says he had Tony Gupta and Lucky Montana over to his home to deal with issues at Prasa, which is the passenger rail agency, because he says at the time Montana had written to him complaining that the Guptas were trying to get rid of him and the then board chairperson, Sufiso Putulezi, who is now the deputy minister of finance. Martin says... He wanted to get to the bottom of the issue. And in the end, no one was replaced, he says. Montana, though, remembers it differently, doesn't he? Yes, he says. When he went to Martin's home, he had no idea that Tony Gupta would join the meeting accompanied by none other than Duduzani Zuma. Montana's version is that the two were there to tell him about their interest in vying for a massive prasa tender to the value of 53 billion rand. But Montana claims he is no Gupta lackey and he resisted their attempts. That's why they wanted him out. But he only wrote the letter complaining about the Guptas after they tried to lobby him. And he says the only reason he wasn't replaced as CEO is because he threatened to resign and tell South Africa exactly what was going on. And that's why he remained in that position. And that's why Sufisu Butelezi remained in that position. I feel like somebody who's trying to catch up with the bold and the beautiful here. It's just there's so many names. There's so many people. It's so 
and Havakled, and like everybody's got skin in the game, and everybody's got a story about how they resisted capture or they were captured. Although those stories generally not told by them. Yeah, but like the characters of the bold and the beautiful. You have complicated characters, and Montana is a bit of a complex, complicated character because he didn't come out shining in the public projector's report on the shenanigans at Prasa, which was aptly titled "Derailed." The bold and the beautiful, and the beat goes on. So back to Suzanne Daniels, who's potentially an unwitting player in this soap opera. What did she do after this? Now famous Melrose Arch meeting with the grey track pants and the no shoes. What would you do after a hard day? Bought myself a stiff shot of whiskey and went to sleep. But that's not the first time she realised that other people were pulling the strings at Eskom. The first time was more than two years ago in March 2015. He told me that Mr. Matona, Ms. Malefe, Mr. Marokani, and Mr. Coco would be suspended, and that there would be an investigation into Eskom. That he that she spoke about is none other than Salim Essa. Wow! So that meeting happened in March 2015. Just I need to give you a bit of context about what was happening at Eskom around that time. The end of 2014 and the first quarter of 2015 was a difficult time for Eskom. It was generating more controversy than electricity. <laughs> Financially, the company was was not doing great, and load shedding was a massive headache for the country. You would remember, in December 2014, a new board was appointed. Allegedly, six of the eight people had links to the Gupta brothers. Lynn Brown had been appointed as Minister of Public Enterprises earlier in 2014, and the board was led by a man named Zola Tsotsi. And Sadiso Matona was the CEO. Well, he was CEO for five months because Salim Essa's premonition came true, and he was suspended. He decided to call it quits, taking a settlement package. So, so did the other two people who were suspended with him. But Machella Koko was the only one left standing. Mr. Koko was the one who convened the meeting with you and uh, Mr. Essa. And uh, the f- he was going to be part of those suspended, and we know that uh, he's the only one that survived the suspension. Is that correct? That is correct. No further questions, sir. So that kind of wrapped up Suzanne Daniels, the whiskey-loving whistleblower's testimony. What's the story with her now? Where where's she at? Is she still employed by Eskom? Was she doing something else? Suzanne Daniels had compiled a report on the Trillion fiasco and handed that report to Minister Lynn Brown. She was then suspended. She's fighting her suspension in the CCMA. But another worrying thing, and this is really frightening. I know we can sort of poke fun at what's been happening, call it the bold and the beautiful, but this is really frightening, serious stuff because she told MPs. That she has received death threats, threatening messages. She also told MPs of a suspicious burglary at her home. Things have been really difficult for Suzanne Daniels ever since she blew the whistle on what was going on. The quote unquote, in her words, brazen theft at Eskom. So what happens now? What happens now is that the inquiry continues. 
I don't know how many days, how many weeks, or how many months MPs will sit listening to witnesses. And the people who have been implicated will also get a chance to respond. So we'll hear from the Mulefes. We'll hear from Lynn Brown, hopefully. That is, as the millennials say, going to be lit. I think so. <laughs> I think so, too. So, I mean, we're going to spend months potentially connecting these dots. We'll probably have a new ANC president by the time those dots are connected. But if it's properly done, presumably it is going to be worth it and worth it for our democracy. And we'll keep keeping you updated. Rahima is fully stocked with all the Bioplus and the Red Bull that she needs to get through these hours and hours and hours of testimony. Charlotte, I'll need a vacation after this. (laughs) We'll see what we can organize.